0: Welcome to Jaffa Space, a podcast about the world of Jewish outdoor, food, farming, and environmental education, or as we like to call it, Jaffe. Welcome to our new series, After the Plague, Nigel Savage in conversation with new guests each week discussing the state of the world and the global Jewish community in a post-COVID-19 world. You'll hear an inside account of how each of our guests is experiencing the lockdown, as well as timely conversations for a changing world. So grab a cup of tea or head out for a walk, and join us as we talk about everything from favorite ice cream flavors to the international response to climate change.
1: So hello, good morning, and welcome everybody to After the Plague. Um, It is uh, still both strange and great to be sat here in a study slash second bedroom on the Upper West Side um, having another of these conversations. I'm actually incredibly excited uh, for this morning. Um, and we are welcoming uh, in some order, I think I'm going to do it initially alphabetically. We'll figure out what the proper order should be in a minute. Rabbi, Rabbi Natty Passel, uh, sorry, Rabbi Danny Passel, Natty Passel and Rabbi Shuley Rabbi Passel. Oh! Um, uh, each of whom is an amazing person each of whom is and has been and is going to be a very significant leader both within the Jewish community and beyond the Jewish community. Danny has orthodox smicha and is rabbi at Harvard Hillel in Boston. Uh, Nati was one of the founders and leaders of Jewish Farm School and lives in Philly and is at the front edge of Je- Jewish urban ag, uh, I would say, in North America. Shilly is a rabbi at BJ and leads social justice work at BJ. Um, and I wanna to say to all three of you and to all of our guests uh, joining us, uh, hi, good morning, and welcome. And first of all, just, just remind us, cause I realized I didn't know this. What is, the, what is the birth order? What's the age gap between the three of you? If, if this were 30 years ago, what would we have been you know, looking at?
0: Uh, it would have been oh, a year these Nati would have been 10 and I would have been six.
1: All right. And as kids, were you, like, good kids? Did you, like, beat each other up? Like, like, like what would your parents, we're not actually going to turn to your parents to ask them, but what would you have been like as, uh, as kids?
2: Uh, uh, I was very uh, disappointed, angry when Nati was born after three years of being the only child. But I spent a lot of time beating him up. And Nati remembers the day when he got big enough to turn the tables. <laughs> That was probably when he was about 10 or 11.
3: It was in, it was in Jerusalem. I was, I was 13.
2: Oh, so you were 13.
3: Yeah. I mean, we, hadn't, we got along, so we hadn't fought in a while. And then we got into a physical fight, and it was clear that I was going to win. And Julie just like stopped it, went into her room, closed the door, and I assumed then cried for the next hour.
2: <laughs> yeah, basically.
3: At the loss of her family superiority. <laughs> I have a sister who's
1: two and a half years younger and she tells a story which she swears is true and I believe is apocryphal that when I was sort of like six and she was four we were playing with toy soldiers and my toy soldiers kept winning and at a certain point she said to me why do your toy soldiers keep winning which apparently I said because I am the English and you are the Germans that's history (laughs) Um, how um, how would you guys when the three of you were siblings, how would you have coped with the uh, with a pandemic and isolation if you'd been put together as, as kids? What do you think you'd been like?
3: Well, well, we didn't have a television growing up, so um, on one hand, we might have been better prepared to just kind of like immerse ourselves in imaginative play. On the other hand, we might have gone a little bit a little bit crazy. But I don't know. What do you think?
0: Well, surely would have read the like 3,000 books that we had in our house. <laughs> and I would have just kept rereading Calvin and Hobbes because that's... More- <laughs>
1: <laughs> so, so basically nothing has changed then, is what you're saying.
2: I would, I would have tried to break up the fights between the two of you, which is basically what I'm doing now with my own children. So that was, you know, we we actually did have a period of being inside. There was a there was a series of snowstorms and ice storms one year, and we had twelve days of no school and not being allowed out. I don't know if you guys remember this. But,
3: yeah. yeah, yeah.
2: So we we did have like a very very micro version of this. Mm-hmm. With, so like, I want to you know, ask.
1: So I wanna ask for now, like for the three of you in in different places, like sort of where are you and how are you? And I guess I'm interested to know what has been most hard about this personally so far? And also have there been things that you've, as it were, gained from this or been been sort of surprised by in a positive sense? Danny.
0: Uh, Sure. Thank you for having me and for us. It's great to see so many family members and others as well. Uh, Currently I'm in Philadelphia with my mother. I've been here for I guess now almost seven weeks Um, and um, yeah I'd say I mean I think for me the biggest challenge was leaving campus so quickly. Uh, Harvard students were given about four days to leave Um, and so there was a big kind of thrust and surprise move in helping students as they had to transition off of uh, their normal course of life, especially for seniors, that was particularly hard. Uh, and then Harvard Hillel, our work kind of changed pretty quickly, and I'm sure it's true for others. Um, but so for me, that's been the most difficult thing. Um, but I'd say sort of on the scale of how people have been affected, I've been uh, fairly minorly affected. Uh, one plus side is I got to have Pesach Seder with a family member for the first time in about a decade, because uh, usually I'm working and on campus. So I got to be here with my mother, and even though it was just the two of us, uh, that was certainly very special.
1: Shirley, how about you?
2: So I'm in my our home in Manhattan on the Upper West Side. Um, I'm not a hostage, as my brother thought, given the, the plain white background behind me. But this gives you an indication of what's going on in my life. There's really no place that I can sit in my apartment where the background is professional enough to be on Zoom because there's piles everywhere and kids everywhere and stuff everywhere. So um, I did find this little blank space and that gives you a sense of what's what's going on over here. We have two, David and I have two small boys, um, ages five and seven. Uh, so uh, look, I, I, I must say that when I go to speak about challenges, um, I have to prep by saying that I'm, I'm sitting in a place of enormous privilege, right? I, I have a home, I have all the food that I would want to eat, um, I have toilet paper, I have my health, everyone's healthy, I have a job that's meaningful, right? And we'll get into this a little bit later on about sort of what am I thinking about, what are we thinking about, what are we seeing? Um, so any challenge that I have is, is minuscule compared to what many people um, in this city and in the country and in the world are experiencing right now. Um, look, the challenge is, is uh, we have, I, I live with three alpha males, you know, of different uh, <laughs> of different ages. So that's uh, that's a challenge because they're all here all the time. Uh, you can imagine uh, what, what some of that's about. Uh, but I will say there's an, you know, been an enormous amount of sweetness um, in being with the family um, pretty much all the time. And in fact, our older son said, I asked him the other day, what's What's good about Corona? Is there anything good about you know what what we're living through? He said, "Yeah, well, I get to watch a lot of television." That was obvious. Um, and uh, and then he said, uh, "You know, family together all the time." And there, I was just sort of blown away by the fact that he said that. And and I've felt you know incredible moments of bonding and sweetness with uh, with them. And and I will say, you know, since my dad's on the on the phone on the line here. Um, He's been, my father's been learning with uh, with Idan, our older son, mm. and doing math, chess, on Zoom, uh, once a week, and or once a day, and, and that's incredible. That never would have happened. Um, so on a personal level, there's actually a lot that I think is, is uh, you know, staying with me is what do I want to carry forward out of this when this is over?
1: Thank you. So, so Natia, I, I want to not only offer you the question to your siblings, like how is this, and what have you gained from it? What's been hard? What has been pleasant about it? But actually, coming on from what Shuli said, I think one of the interesting questions coming up is, what does this actually mean developmentally for kids? And as the world starts to open up again, how, how, how will kids have been affected by this? What sorts of things become a challenge? What sorts of things become possible. And I, I sort of add that to your sort of like opening questions. Your kids, I think, are a bit younger than Chili's. And so in one sense, they almost may be too young to be able years down the road to remember any other reality than this. But how are you and, and how is it for you and your family and how do you think this is for kids coming out?
3: Yeah, great. Um, well, thanks, God. We're, we're doing pretty well. Um, I think like both my siblings said, I, I feel very fortunate and very privileged, um, both in terms of, you know, everyone in my immediate family is, is healthy right now and um, has been pretty healthy. Um, and also just like our setup is pretty, is not bad for this kind of situation. We um, live in West Philly. We have a house with a lot of space. We have a housemate, so we have some built-in company. Um, we have a big yard, so the kids can get some outside running around uh, time and, and space that might not be possible for some other people. Um, and also the, the logistics. Um, my partner Rachel is an art teacher. She's teaching one art class online a day for her school. And other than that is around and I'm um, gainfully unemployed right now and um, which is giving me a lot of time to be with the family. So that is certainly um, has been a real a real benefit like our, our setup and, and the time that we're getting to spend together. Um, I think I think that the hardest parts have been um, certainly just kind of like the, the weight of the of the overall situation um, and knowing that um, while I have not been touched so directly yet um, by the uh, effects of the virus, um, many people have. And you know, there's there's a lot of sadness. There's there's people suffering and and, and dying, and, um, and that and that's heartbreaking. Um, when I kind of give myself the, the time and space to zoom out and think about that. Um, but I'd say like the first, the first two weeks were particularly hard for me. Um, the, the kind of the real uncertainty about what was happening, I, I found was creating a lot of, um, anxiety for me and, and that was hard. And now that we've like settled in, um, things are generally, I'd say pretty good. Um, all things considered, but, um, one of the things that continues to be hard is is how I'm, I'm someone who likes to have like a schedule for the week, um, kind of have a clear sense of like what my day is going to look like. And I'm finding that we just need to be a lot more spontaneous, um, depending on, you know, oh, the kids are in this kind of mood right now. Like, cool, let's get them outside. They have a lot of energy, like, even though we were originally going to do something else then. And um, so kind of like adapting and, and, and settling into that has been a little bit um, of a, of a, an adjustment but I think it's a good it's a good lesson to be learning. Um, two other like things that have been kind of rewarding and, and beneficial about this situation is you know I, I wrapped up we closed Jewish Farm School at the end of December and my plan was to take two months of kind of a mini sabbatical and I literally had Monday March 16th on my calendars like start looking for a job <laughs> um, well, that was a little bit of uh you know, unfortunate timing. So this is, it's kind of forcing like a longer sabbatical. Um, and that's actually been really nice. Um, I, those two months were good, but it was a lot more recovery. Um, and now this time feels a lot more like I'm present. Um, I'm getting to cook a lot more and experiment a lot more in the kitchen. And that's been really good. And again, having the time with my kids has been really great. Um, I am struck by how different this experience is for different people. Um, Just depending, I mean, um, even, even just within our family, right? The three siblings we're having like probably pretty different experiences right now. And then if you zoom out and you think about along like race and class divides and um, stages of life and all these things, like, you know, just so different from one house to the next. And you see some language out there of like, Oh, this is like a unifying, a shared experience, but I, I really don't think so. I think, people are experiencing it very differently, depending on so many different factors. Um, and then lastly, in terms of the impact on I mean, I've been thinking a lot about that question about how is this gonna impact our kids and our kids are four and six and they're wonderful. And they've been, you know, I think they're enjoying a lot of the, like full on parent attention that they're getting. Um, I think they miss, you know, their friends a bit. They miss being able to see their grand, grandparents and um, and just kind of the, the more relaxed vibe we generally have. I'm noticing with my older one, like he 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 has um, definitely heard the call to like be careful, wash your hands. And I've noticed that he is more reluctant to like go for a walk, um, or uh, you know he's he wants to be more careful. And I'm I'm curious like how much of a you know that's going to continue on, and is he going to be uh, afraid of exploring the world um but i also think that like we're we're potentially at a moment where like a lot of kind of norms and standards are going to shift and so um you know we were never that careful about washing hands and now like they fully the kids fully get it They're, they wash hands all the time that's probably not going to change um and that's probably okay um but I, i'm not really sure i'm 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 one thing i read early on was that what, what the kids, what young kids are going to remember about this experience is kind of the energy in their house and how they, what they see the adults in their life, um, how they're responding. So early on, we, we tried very carefully to, as anxious as I was feeling, to not let that anxiety come out in front of the kids. Um, and we've talked about you know, the feelings of frustration and sadness and, and whatever's coming up and we want to kind of honor and give space to those things. but. Um, but I, we've we've also tried to create a, a, a more fun and wholesome um, and positive experience for our kids, and they're they're at that young enough age where like they can play by themselves and do kind of more stuff on their own, but they're not so old that they're um they don't seem so worried about it, and I think that's that's good.
1: There are a lot of things that you said just now that that hit a chord and and go off in a series of different directions, but one is. Firstly, I definitely think it's the case that this has hit people in radically different ways. And at the, and at the simplest level, I mean, there are people who've, who've, you know, lost family members, including in some cases, not at such old ages. And, and we, like, we haven't directly lost somebody who's close to us, but we have friends who have lost people uh, who have been close on one side. And then people who've suddenly got their, lost their job and have huge, you know, money stresses or stresses like that. And people who are suddenly like working around the clock and so are so incredibly busy. And, and, and I think it's true at a societal level, that people who are wealthy in general are more insulated and people who are poor are more exposed and stuff. But even putting that on one side, this is, this is just a radically different range of experiences. And we're all gonna be sitting there a year from now, having conversations and perhaps making presumptions that this was as for others as it was for us. And the people we're speaking to may have had different experiences. I think the thing about social norms I'm also aware of, I was in Central Park yesterday, it was a beautiful day. And yesterday was the first day that it looked like New Yorkers really got the memo. And it looked like 97% of the people in the park were wearing masks. And I feel like we'd all seen those like pictures of like Japan and people in Japan wearing masks and thinking that it was slightly strange that they did that. And now like the way that New York and Philly and Boston Look on the other side of this is going to be, you know, a little bit different in that regard. And how do we, how do we, what does it mean to to just naturally hug a person when you see them, right? When is that when is that next going to be the case that one can do that, and what does it do to the fabric of social relationship, you know, to say hi, Nettie, and like you know, put out an elbow? And I don't think, I think, I think we went into like the suddenness of this like, each person coping with what they cope with, and now it's sort of like it's both slowing down and we've got used to it, and it's changing, and the horizons are sort of lengthening. Um, And maybe actually that's a segue to questions like, what does Jewish life look like on the other side of this? What does a synagogue look like? How do we gather? Kazan was going to... Natty, I can't remember if you were... Were you at the Shemitah Summit that we did in London in April of 2014? Yeah. 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 So we had penciled in to do a Shemitah Summit sometime this winter. TBD, we hadn't yet figured it out sometime between like October, November and March, which we assumed we would do in person again with a bunch of people. Hadn't yet figured out where, hadn't quite raised the money. And in the last couple of weeks, we were like, oh, let's just do a version of that online next month. We're going to invite a group of people. I think we're going to invite you. But um, I don't think originally we would have ever thought to do something like that. There is physical value in getting people together. And now it's going to be like, oh, well, if we can do a version of this online and it saves getting both the cost of, of a plane, the carbon of getting on a plane, then why would we not only not do this by video, but when would we ever do it again in person? And that's suddenly, like, what, where did that come from? And is that good? Is it not good? What's gained by that? What's lost by that? Thoughts, comments? Shirley Danny, uh, what did uh, BJ look like want, on the other panelists? I want to
2: jump in on this because I, I think there's, there are a lot of different contexts <clears throat> in the Jewish community in which these questions are are playing out and will continue to play out. Um, First, I just wanna go back to something that you said about the social norms and the change of the experience of not shaking hands or hugging each other and and wearing wearing masks, because I think on the one hand, and I'm seeing this within the the micro level in my building and in the BJ community in New, New York City, there's a real move for people to reach out to others Um, You know, the the number of initiatives that people have started to provide food to frontline workers and PPE to um, people in hospitals and in my building, there's a WhatsApp group for um, getting meals to an older couple that can't get out. And in the BJ community, we see more people asking for support for getting groceries and showing that vulnerability and more people showing up and ready to go and provide those that help and do that chesed in a way that I don't know that we would have seen that level before. And everybody's benefiting from it. So on the one hand, there is this sense of like connectedness and giving and on the other hand, and I see this when I walk around the street in New York, there is a sense of fear, You know, this constant sense of, am I six feet away from that person? when I'm walking on the sidewalk. Am I six feet away? I also was in Central Park yesterday. I've noticed people are not making eye contact, which has never been a big New York thing, but to the extent that people ever made eye contact, I'm finding that people are making eye contact less when they pass each other on the street. There's a real sadness in that, right? Like, I, that's not how the virus is transmitted, but sort of the fear that maybe I'll, I'll, con, I'll contract it or I'll get too close if I look another person in the eye. So there's sort of the, you know, this is playing out in in a very positive way and also in this very negative way that sort of questions, I think as you are Nigel, what is this gonna mean for our sense of humanity and and willingness to connect with other people? Um, And and that also speaks to the question about how are we gathering within Jewish communities? Um, In a synagogue context at at BJ, you know, we have seen an enormous increase in um, people joining the things that we've offered virtually. So morning minion, evening minion in particularly, double, triple, quadruple the number of people um, because people want to connect and it also adds rhythm to the day, like Nati said, you know, it gives some structure and you see people you know. And on the other hand, I know that there's an enormous desire to be in the sanctuary, to hear the music, to give people a hug. So I think that there's a blessing in that we've been able to move a lot of our offerings and, and and programs to Zoom. I know that other synagogues are feeling this way as well. Um, but it, it, nobody is feeling like it's replacing the in-person, the energy that comes from being in a room with people um, and the ability to make eye contact, which you can't really do so well on Zoom um, and sing together. Um, and so we're, we're definitely seeing that, uh, you know, and so what does that mean for the future? I, I think that's kind of the question that, that a synagogue like BJ is trying to figure out right now. You know, on the one hand, we've been able to, many more people have, have joined our Tfilot and our programs from all over the world. On Yom Tzmaut Ma'ut, last week we did, we had Halel with some of our partners in Israel, leading hollow. That's nothing we, we would never would have thought to do that if it hadn't been for Zoom, right? If we hadn't been in this situation. That's an amazing thing. One of them said this was the most beautiful, meaningful yomats for me. Um, I would, I want to do this again. I don't want to go back to, uh, you know, to being in our separate corners. So that's a beautiful thing. And then on the other hand, um, we're, we're not going to, transition everything to online. Um, And obviously for communities that are, and individuals who are Shomer Shabbat, the use of the technology is uh, you know, is is a big question um, and is, is an impediment to gathering in, in those ways. But I want to say there's an enormous amount of creativity, um, halakhic creativity, um, creativity and how to gather. Right when this first started uh, on Purim, I saw a video of a Chabad rabbi reading Megillah in Central Park with people spread out far away from each other. Now in Jerusalem, you can have a minion in the street, so people are standing in front of their, in front of their buildings in the street. The halakhic creativity that's going into thinking through: can you use Zoom on Shabbat for the seder for this or that? There's going to be a huge body of response to literature that's going to be fascinating. Um, so there's a lot of, you know, sort of when you think about the Jewish community, it's interesting to see um, how, to what extent this is going to continue. But these are the questions, and I don't think the an- we have the answers yet. Um, but these are the exact questions that a
1: place like BJ is thinking about. Well, the other questions, and I actually, one of the pleasures of having the three of you together is that the three of you are, as it were, from a single family, but have had slightly different Jewish journeys. And some of the places, Shirley, that you are getting to just now, I actually specifically want to ask you, Danny. Um, uh, first of all, um, I work closely at Chazon with Shirley Karkowski, and her shul, her family shul is Young Israel of New Israel. So that shul was in isolation, as it were, before everybody else. And one of the things that was amazing was that Chabad, and now we've sort of all adapted to it, but then it was like nobody else on planet Earth was in isolation, so on. And Chabad sent kids around to read Megillah for every family. And they literally like rang the front door, opened the door, stood 10 feet away, laid the Megillah, and went on to the next one, which I thought was very sweet. We did two seders by Zoom. And literally, um, at the last minute, it was like the morning of Er uh, of Pesach. We got an email from a friend, from a friend of a friend, saying there was this there was this lady, and could we have her on our Zoom seder? She, I think all we knew was that she was ninety one and she was Orthodox. And it turned out that she's ninety one. She has fifty seven charedi grandkids and great-grandkids, all in Israel. And she spends every Pesach in Israel. And this year, for the first time, she couldn't go to Israel. And her family were too from to be on Zoom. But her brother, who's a very big, well-known, not liberal Orthodox rabbi, like a sort of major Orthodox rabbi, posking, like, you should be on Zoom, like, like nobody in our family is actually on Zoom, but like, you should be on Zoom. She ended up being on our Zoom seder. We've sort of become friends with her, and we've like, you know, stayed in touch uh, since then. She's an amazing person. And more recently, she told me that her brother had said to her, um, phone me any Shabbat. Like, you're 91 and you shouldn't be by yourself. Phone me any Shabbat you want, I'll pick up the phone. And I found it very moving to be with like, like like we all become more fixed as we get older, to be with a 91-year-old who has been scrupulously Shama Shabbat her whole life, suddenly doing this stuff on Shabbat and kind of like into it and engaging with it and so on. And I think that it has been relatively the, the non-orthodox world has technologically had to cope with how do we do certain things online, but halakhically in a general case, it hasn't been so complicated of an issue. Danny, you have orthodox, you're probably at the liberal end of of orthodoxy, but I'm interested what your observation is of of how this is playing out in the orthodox community and where there have been opportunities and where there have been challenges. And Just one last thing that I'll say, it, it may be more liberal in this country, but there's a good friend of mine in England whose father died and they basically, I mean, apart from doing, you know, a funeral where there were like three people there and then Zoom, but when they then did an online shifat, which was hosted by his rabbi, that didn't include Kaddish, because certainly in England, they've in that you can't do uh, Kaddish online. Thoughts, comments?
0: Danny, sure. you yeah. Um You may hear my mother gasp in the other room when I, I share some of my thoughts here. Um, so, frankly, I certainly have a lot of sympathy uh, to people in situations where they're isolated, um, where they isolated for long periods of time. Um, At this point, it's sort of standard PSOC. I think the RCA, the rabbinical council of America, the major uh, centrist orthodox body in the U.S. told rabbis they should take phone calls from people who uh, are in psychological distress and would need to call them. Um, So I think in terms of those individual one-off cases, uh, on a technical level of how you deal with using a computer or a phone, uh, it's not so difficult. Uh, We tend to treat electricity and its use Uh, It's manipulation on Shabbat fairly strictly, uh, but on a real technical level, it's by something which is a rabbinic prohibition, or perhaps even just a very strict minhag, a very strict uh, custom, uh, which I think allows room for its use uh, in certain situations. Um, But I think the fact that uh, cessation from use of electricity on Shabbat is treated very strictly within our community, I think actually is perhaps the most defining experience of Shabbat. Uh, so if I have a student who comes to me and says, uh, you know, I'm interested in growing in my observance and keeping Shabbat in some way before I tell them not to write or before I tell them, uh, not to, uh, not, you know, to be careful about selecting of bow rare, I'll tell them to put their phone away for Shabbat. Um, and so I definitely have f- broader concerns of if there are sort of wider scale, uh, permissions to use electricity, that I think that could undermine the overall Shabbat experience. Um, so for me, it's trying to strike the correct balance of really people who are in uh, real need, that they can get the Heterum, the permission that they need to use electricity. Uh, and certainly the woman you just described uh, might very well fall into that category. While at the same time, uh, trying to make sure that it doesn't become a larger scale phenomenon. I think amongst uh, my own friends, those who, who, as they've gotten older, haven't had families, uh, kind of the first thing to go in their own religious observance is, you know, it's the third week in a row that they don't have a Shabbat meal invitation, uh, and they're lonely, and they, you know, turn on Netflix. Um, and I can sympathize with that, but I think also that's something that um, we need to also to sort of re-inculate within our society and our collective psyche is the ability uh, to be alone um, and the ability to... To use our creative minds uh, and to read. And again, so I think it, it's always in halakha trying to balance various values. Uh, for me, <clears throat> I tend to kind of, my natural inclination is more towards staying away from the use of electricity, uh, except in, in more exigent circumstances. Uh, there's also, I think, a, a broader question, which is how much do we want to transfer pre existing categories, say, if, uh, in halakha, uh, and find an analogous way to apply them? Uh, with regard to modern technology. So as an example, uh, is my typing on a computer the same thing as writing on Shabbat? Uh, so on a technical level, we tend to say no, but there are those who want to say no. There's kind of a, a parallel world that we now live in, and uh, the best way to, uh, to have halacha adapt to that world is to find uh, kind of uh, analogous parallels to uh, existing halakha categories.
1: Look, it's interesting that on the other side of this, the experience between in Orthodox communities and non-Orthodox communities is going to be, I mean, all sorts of things are different, but one is that there are a lot of non-Orthodox shuls that have now clearly crossed over to using video. And on the other side of this, I think it's going to be much more common for them to have physical services and then also have people join online, whereas Orthodox shuls in general haven't been meeting on Shabbat. I think, in this period. And it may then be that by the time the doors open, there's a tremendous physical desire to regather. But that's going to be, it's just going to be sociologically, it's just going to be a further change in the world. But let me let me take it up for a second um, and just go I'm in a different direction. I'd like to say,
0: actually, to say one, one quick thing. I think so. In my mind, I think most people on a kind of personal level eventually will bounce back from this. But I think the the serious challenges we're going to have are going to be for next year or two with regard to large gathering. What do the high holidays look like, not just in 2020, but perhaps also in 2021 and maybe even 2022. Um, you know, we might have smaller scale gatherings that return, but I think a lot of synagogues are used to having hundreds of people in the room at once. It's not clear that's going to be uh, safe anytime in the near future.
1: The whole question of planning and how we plan for the future, I mean, we closed Isabella Friedman for the first... Basically, for the first two months, which included Pesach, only in the last week did we finally decide to close for Shavuot. But we really, in the next week or two, are going to have to figure out whether and if and how we can reopen. It's really not clear. It's only in the last week that a lot of the Jewish summer camps closed. And I agree. I think, I think these questions are coming down the pike, and there are just no good answers. And it's pretty intense that every different kind of unknowable inflects every other kind of unknowable. Like we don't know the health issues, we don't know the practical issues, we don't know the financial issues, we don't know the social and cultural issues, we don't know the legal and insurance issues. and each of these things is contingent upon other pieces of it, and it's kind of a mess. But let's just go up bigger for a second. It's like, here we are. I, I have asthma. Um, I never had it as a kid. I've had it in the last few years. This winter was the first time I had really bad asthma and I was on inhalers and steroids and stuff. Finally, the fourth round of steroids worked and I haven't been using them for the last three or four weeks. But I also, for the first time, feel that I can feel that the air in New York is better. And I actually feel that I can feel that there are fewer cars on the roads and fewer planes in the air. And we're in this incredibly strange moment where... For the, for, the, for, the, for the whole of the world's economy to suddenly hammer on the brakes in a way that causes hundreds of millions of people to lose their job and lose their livelihoods is at the end of the day a catastrophe. It's not in any sense something good on the one hand. And yet, to the extent that this is a small-scale version, as it were, of like the world biting back and saying to us certain, certain aspects of how we're living isn't, isn't healthy, literally isn't sustainable, we have this very strange partial metaphor with the pandemic as a small-scale version of what happens when our lives get out of balance. Um, And all of that is on the one hand, and on the other hand, to my somewhat astonishment, there are tens and tens and tens of millions of people who... For example, think that this administration is doing a good job, which I find hard to credit, Um, who are impatient to go back to work regardless of consequences, get the economy starting again, all of that. And I feel feel confused personally by the fact that I I feel that there is a, a clear sense, it's so obvious to me now, at a point that governments are reflating in a remarkable way. If you're going to print money, why not print money to have free high-quality health care for every citizen? If you're going to print money, why not fix every school and every hospital and every road, let alone public transit? And that way you ensure fuller employment and you create a better world for everybody. And by the way, in the course of doing that, you could do that in a way that would literally create a green economy and retrofit buildings and do all sorts of things. The limiting factor has been that it costs $10 trillion. And suddenly $10 trillion is available. And yet it seems like the the social, cultural, political clarity about this is not obvious. And I'm... I'm a little bit baffled and I'm interested for any of you to to like how do you look at this? What to you is easy, what's hard, what's obvious, what are our mistakes, what can could or should happen? Anybody? I'll,
3: I'll, go go ahead, ahead, Julie. Um so one of the first thoughts maybe like a week or so in um to kind of the stay-at-home order in Philly, which seemed to correspond to stay-at-home orders in a lot of other places, where seemingly like, you know, this had been brewing for a while, but then there was kind of like a week or two period where it seemed like the whole world kind of got on more or less the same page. Um, And one of my first thoughts was that this is what it looks like when the land takes her Shemitah, right? In the Torah, it says very explicitly, like if, if, If we don't keep Shemitah, the land will get kicked off the land and the land will take her Shemitah. And, um, you know, it's when when I've taught about Shemitah in the past, and and you can say the same thing about kind of any sort of disturbance or disruption, um, climate change, etc., that if you, it's happening. And the question is whether you're going to prepare for it and try to make the transition or the adaptation as graceful, and as uh, free of suffering as possible. And if you don't, it's still gonna happen and then it will be a lot less graceful and um, include a lot more suffering. And I, and I feel like I, I was struck by how quickly it seemed that global capitalism was brought to its knees at a, at a, at a pace that I, I just couldn't have even imagined a month ago um, or, or two months ago at this point, because it's, <laughs> now been living in our houses for two months. Um, but, and so it's, it's striking because I, I, I just, I, I wouldn't have imagined in something like that transition happening so quickly. Um, and yes, people are kind of, you know, you've maybe seen the images or the maps of pollution between, you know, from now and a year ago in different cities and things like that. And there's obvious um, immediate direct benefits to what's happening from, certainly from an ecological perspective. Um, I, I think the, the question is what, um, what lessons from this moment do we take, right? I saw early on a friend, Tali Weinberg, who used to be the fire manager at Adama, um, she posted on, on Facebook, you know, what is, what is scarier to you that we won't go back to how things used to be or that we will go back to how things used to be? Um, and, and to me, that's like a, a big question. I, I get the in- inclination. There's a, there's a grieving process going on. There's, we're, we're losing, um, There there's there so many aspects of how life was even just a few months ago that I, I think is, is painful to think about losing. Um, and so the instinct is to go back to something that is familiar. And um, I heard Amichai Lalavi um, just on the Judaism Unbound podcast talk about the Midrash that says that Four fifths of the Israelites in Egypt didn't leave; that they stayed in Egypt because the familiar, as oppressive as it was, was um, what felt like a safer option. Um, and you know, I think what I noticed my own anxiety and uncertainty in the first couple of weeks was largely driven by the fact that I didn't know what was going to happen. Like that there was no roadmap for what was the, what, what was about to happen, and I didn't. Feel a whole lot of confidence in the leadership that is, you know, driving steering the ship, and so um, I think that that kind of uncertainty sometimes forces us or compels us to um, want to revert back to um, things that are familiar, and and maybe that's what's driving some of the. Um, the, the movement to just kind of get things back. If we can, if we just ignore the fact that there's this pandemic going on, things will just be normal again. We can just behave like they're normal and then they must be normal. Um, and, and I think there is, is some, some real opportunity here. Um, I think that the, the, the divisions and cracks within our system, within our society, as more pressure is put on the society, those cracks grow bigger. Um, and become more obvious. Um, and, um, you know, one of the messages that I heard early on, coming more from the activist community and uh, especially um, initiatives le- led by people of color, was much more of a sense of hope and optimism about this moment. They're saying, we've been, we've been working toward building another world. We know the, the world that we've been in is, 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 has, is broken, is not working for the majority of people. This is a a moment that can usher in some some real change, hopefully, if we we pay attention to the the lessons.
1: I was was talking, I just want to say, I was was talking to Aaron Ariel Levy, who works for Chazon in Israel. And one of the things he said, Nati, picking up on something that you just said, but in a slightly opposite way, is that we've always thought of Shemitah as an amazing thing and as an amazing metaphor and possibility and teaching and stuff. He said, but one of the reasons that we know that Shemitah was observed in the Second Temple times is because we have these quotes from the Romans saying, oh my God, the Jews are so crazy, like they're not plowing the land and they're not eating this and they're not doing this and what the hell are they doing? And, and he said, it's been a new thing for me to realize that Shemitah actually at that level represented some kind of deprivation. But this notion of like slowing down the pace of society and the economy, which at one level in terms of carbon outputs we may see as, as good, and in other ways we may see as good, actually we may not have paid attention enough also to how hard that is, and also the challenges of that. Surely, and I'm going to, we're going to start, we may go over slightly, in the past we haven't gone over 45 minutes, but this time we've had three guests rather than, than one. Um, we're going to start to wrap, but even so I had one question online, from somebody who wanted to know why Natty was wearing a baseball cap indoors. Um, if you have questions online on Facebook, you can put them online or on the Zoom Zoom, and we we uh, we may get to like one or two quick questions from outside. But um, but yes, Shirley, over to you. Uh,
2: I I mean I have a lot to say about this, and I, I know you had Ruth Messenger on, on this um on this show a couple weeks ago. <laughs> and and I encourage people to go and and watch that because she spoke a lot about these questions not just regarding the environment but also racial and economic inequity and what's going on in the developing world, what we're seeing. Um, the, you know, the line that, that ha- keeps coming back to me throughout this whole thing is this great line from The Simpsons, where Lisa tells Homer that the Chinese have the same word for crisis and opportunity. And he says, oh, yeah, crisis-tunity. So I feel like we're in this amazing crisis-tunity. Um, but the the thing that I that I feel a little nervous about is that we've we've had a lot of crisis opportunities You know, nine eleven was a crisis unity. Hurricane Sandy, Hurricane Katrina. Every time there's a natural disaster, people say, you know, oh, this is exposing this. This is exposing that. None of this information is new, right? No, nobody is. I don't think this pandemic is exposing new um, information about environmental degradation, about racial disparity in healthcare in this country, about um, the pitfalls of, of global capitalism, all of that is, is, is not new. Um, so I think the question is how do, we, how do we, now that more and more people are talking about it, which I think is the case, I'm kind of seeing this everywhere, you know, Dan Doctoroff, who um, helped lead New York City's um, economic recovery after 9-11, working for Mayor Bloomberg, had a great piece in the Times a couple weeks ago about how to create a more sustainable and inclusive New York, and how to use this as an opportunity that hasn't been used in the past. Um, A lot of people are writing about this, a lot of people are thinking about this, Um, and so I think the question is, can we really do it? And, And that's uh, to me, it feels like there are a number of important components that are involved in that question. One is, <clears throat> are people willing to actually, are leaders actually willing to come together and sit down and think about what could possible solutions or new realities or new structures be? Things that haven't existed before, not just smaller tweaks. So, Nige, I hope that, you know, next week you're going to have like economists and urban planners and medical professionals and government officials from all over the world. I hope that's your show next week because that's actually what's really needed. It's lovely. I'm very happy to sit here with my brothers and we could talk about this all day, but it's lovely for people who think, you know, along the same lines to have this conversation. It's another thing for people who see things really differently and have different expertise. Um, and are really smart to come together and, and think about this. That's one, one aspect that I think is going to be absolutely necessary. Um, I think the other piece is going to be leadership. Um, leadership, not just to make things happen, but to, to support people in being ready to open to the change, to say, I don't want to go back to the familiar, or I'm ready to... Tentatively take steps into something that's new, and that's unknown. Um, And that's, I mean, that's where I, you know, have a lot of things to say about the current administration in this country, but I think that's a job not just for the President of the United States, but for religious leaders, for business leaders, for um, for, for local politicians. And, you know, there are a lot of different definitions of leadership. And one that I was reminded of recently is is that leadership is disappointing people at a rate that they can absorb, at a rate that they can take the disappointment, right? And I think there's a truth to that in this moment, that there's going to be not just disappointment, but, but grief or fear or loss. And how do leaders help carry people through that? So I I went back to, I was thinking about, uh, you know, Kennedy's line from his inaugural address about, ask not what your country can do for you, but what you can do for your country. And I went to look it up and I actually read the whole inaugural address, which I had never actually read. And the, the amazing thing is he says, after he says that line, he then says, my fellow citizens of the world, ask not what America will do for you, but what together we can do for the freedom of man. And finally, whether you are citizens of America or citizens of the world, ask of us the same high standards of strength and sacrifice which we ask of you. Right? That's a leader. Basically, it's a very inspiring and beautiful way of saying to people, you're going to be disappointed. We all have to make sacrifices. We all have to do things differently. We can't live in a culture of one-upmanship globally or, um, or at the local level. We, we can't, it can't be all about, you know, putting yourself at the center of the universe. So we need people who are ready to give that message and support people to make those changes so that we get to the new world that hopefully other smart people are thinking about constructing. The last thing I want to say on this, and, and obviously there's a lot more to say, but the last thing I want to say is on the question of like individual adaptability. And that's one of the things that I've noticed and been surprised by um, in my own family is just like, wow, human beings are so adaptable. If you had said to me two months ago that I would have spent the next two months basically living nonstop in my apartment with my two very energetic boys and uh, barely going out at all and trying to homeschool them, I would have said, well, we will kill each other after the first week. But that didn't happen and in fact we're having a lot of moments of loving each other and and humans are adaptable and i do think that people a lot of people i know and i'm seeing this um i'm on the board of the institute for jewish spirituality and the the number of people who've signed up to um, be part of daily meditations and to take this new class awareness in action that helps people think about how to be their best selves in a type of time of Crisis. I think that that's a, you know, I, I know that that's happening outside of the Jewish world as well. In terms of you know meditation spaces and contemplative um, practice circles, that there's an increase in in the desire for this and and a recognition of the need for it. And I think those are practices that will also help people expand consciousness and be more adaptable and more open to, you know, a new system where we we're not going to get what we want all the time and we're not going to be able to shop in the way that we shopped before, or um, have everything that we have, or we have a different system of of, uh, of economies. And again, I'm not the person to say what that could look like, but I'm really interested in, in that conversation um, and in learning from people who are ready to imagine in those ways.
1: Philly, that was really phenomenal. I love the number of different things that you packed into that, all of which are both provocative and inspiring and good for us to listen to. Um, And I'm actually going to take that, as it were, as a last word from you. And Natty and Danny, I'm just going to ask each of you for just a little, um, a piece of advice for everybody, like a piece of personal advice, a thing to do or not do, a thing to read, a video, but uh, a piece of advice. And and after that, I'm going to say a couple of thank yous, a word about next week, and a very special treat that we're going to do right at the very end of this. But uh, Danny, Natty, a last word from each of you.
3: You're older and wiser. You can go first. All right. Um, Thanks. Well, this has been really awesome. Um, And I think one of the things that has struck me was um, I have, I, I kind of joke around that I have like the unfortunate combination of prepper sensibilities coupled with like extreme procrastination. So I have like a huge list of things that I should be doing to prepare for any sort of calamity, but I don't actually get to do any of them. And like, this has shaken me a little bit. Um, and so this, you know, these, these kinds of, I've been thinking about, especially in the context of climate change, like what, you know, what the future holds and how to be best prepared, um, for it. Um, and I think one of the things, uh, I, I, many years ago took a permaculture design course. Permaculture is a design system for kind of sustainability, um, on multiple levels. And one of the permaculture principles that has, has been coming up for me a lot in this moment is that of redundancy, um, that you look at your system and any of your essential needs, you wanna make sure are being met by multiple sources. So you're not overly dependent on one source. And um, that has been helpful just in terms of procuring food um, and, and figuring out how to adapt and, and, and um, source food from different sources than what we, what we used to. Um, but I think it, it, it's, it's an important um, principle, also emotionally and spiritually, right? That like, if we put all of our eggs in one basket um, for our crucial needs, then we're, we're less resilient, we're less able to adapt. Um, and so that has been something I've been thinking a lot about. I've, I found to be helpful in this moment and invite folks to um, consider um, and think about in, in their own lives on on multiple levels.
1: Thank you, Nathan, Danny.
3: Uh, yeah, so one of my teachers,
0: Rabbi Saul Berman, uh, has an argument that anytime the Torah prohibits us temporarily from engaging in something, it's a call for us to reflect upon how we engage in that activity when we are permitted to engage with it. So fasting on Yom Kippur uh, should lead us to consider how we engage with food the rest of the year. Uh, on Shabbat, when we uh, uh, desist from using um, or certain kinds of activities, creative activities, it's a call for us to reflect upon how we engage with those the other six days of the week. And I'd say one of the main things that most of us now uh, are uh, taking a break from is uh, many forms of human touch. And so I think this is a good opportunity for us to consider both its power in a positive way as, as we miss embracing those who we're used to embracing uh, to uh, consider how meaningful that kind of touch is. But also I'd say, especially over the past few years, we become more and more aware of how touch has been misused uh, and abused. Uh, and sometimes there can be a subtle difference between uh, a form of touch which is uh, positive and healthy and that which can be uh, manipulative or more problematic. And so hopefully if we spend the next, whatever it is, few months, year, more, uh, when we're not allowed to uh, shake hands or hug in the same way that we're used to, if we consider how we want to use touch when we're, when we're returned back to normal. I think that could be a valuable lesson.
1: So Shilly Natty and Danny, Danny. first of all, I just want to say humongous thank you to each and all of you. Um, to the various members of the Paso family, uh, on this video right now, you should share lots of nahas. I know that you do. Um, we are honored to have you with us, and we're honored even to have non-members of the Paso family uh, with us. Thank you for joining us.
2: And thank you, so, Nigel, for this opportunity yeah. for thank us you. to
1: thank be you. together. Thank, thank you. Me. I want to I wanna, uh, thank Ellie um, uh, uh, and Liana from Chazan, who have quite amazingly— Eli um, Weinbach and Liana Rothman, who have um, staffed this and have done a really amazing job of it. I want to note that this is the 24th day of the Omer, which is actually Tiferet Jebenetzach. So this, this week in the Omer is about endurance. And Tiferet Jebenetzach is something about doing that with beauty and balance. And I just want to note that the three of you have really epitomized uh, Tiferet Sheba Netzach. And the Netzach piece of this is that this is going to go on for a while. um, And the world is going to go on for a while. And we need a sense of both Netzach and Tiferet as we do that. Um, At the end of this broadcast, we are going to put up as a treat for you Rabbi Pesach Stadlin. We did this thing last week, Sound the Call. And Pesach was one of the people who was meant to be on it, couldn't be on it. We were going to be blowing. We were. Blowing chauffeurs all around the world for the 50th anniversary of Earth Day. Pesach sent us this amazing video from Israel uh, about three days later. And it's about six minutes long. And you surely were talking about what were the two words you put together? A Chris Chris Chris, how did you say a Chris topic unity? So
2: so
1: so you will see at the end of this the very first blowing. Of, of something that is either a slute or a flofar, and you 'll see it when you go there um, okay. we are I actually want to have quite a wide range of guests on after the plague in the future, um, and it will include some public policy people and some economists uh, next week 's guests are rabbis Phyllis Berman and Arthur Waskow, and Arthur in particular is I forget how old Arthur is now, but he 's genuinely a prophet they 're both remarkable people. And so I, for now, want to say thank you. And here is Pesach Stadlin. And please join us next week at noon for rabbis uh, Phyllis Berman and Arthur Wascow. Thank you very much, everybody. Stay safe. We've not got volume. Good every day.
2: Every day. Representing myself and the Eden Village camp,
3: I just wanted to share uh, a couple insights uh, and blow the shofar. Insights of the day: uh, Maybe heard there's something, you know, going around. There's like a bug going around, and uh, it's becoming clearer than ever how interconnected we are. So may that grow. I think another thing that's become abundantly clear is that the whole world can change. Things can change super, super quick. May they change for a blessing. Uh, if you, I don't know if this is even true, but I heard that the oil fields have stopped suckling oil today. Like today, like they stopped suckling. They're cutting back on this uh, addiction to oil. Which is something that we've been working towards and praying towards. It's not happening because the humans did anything on purpose. It's sort of a side effect, but still, we'll take it. So we're weaning
2: off of.
1: Yeah, I don't know if you can hear me, but I think that wasn't working. And I think we're going to put this up on Facebook. And if in doubt, please go over to Facebook and we're going to post that video of of Pesach Stadlin, and you'll be able to go on because I think that the double wooviness uh, is not quite working. And so for now, I just want to say a humongous thank you uh, to everybody, to all of our guests, to everybody for joining us, uh, and to all of my staff. And stay safe, be inspired, and we'll see you next week.
2: Thank you. Bye-bye. Bye,
1: everyone. Thank Bye. you.